The world around us is changing faster than ever before. before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome, Welcome. to Data Welcome. Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be, bold, be brave, be and be brave. fearless, let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Today's guest is Nicole Schmidt. She is a co-founder and managing partner of Oberon Securities. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you for having me. So appreciated this morning. I'm excited to have you here as well. And, you know, you bring a unique lens to our listeners today. As you know, most of our listeners are kind of in the data analytics space, but I really thought it was important to have you on because there's this whole other layer of understanding as entrepreneurs, business leaders that is important to understand from the financial side. So thank you. That's a long way of saying thank you for being here. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. I'm, I'm a big supporter of all entrepreneurial pursuits because I, I have a first-hand experience and the front row seat into what it takes to really get a business off the ground, which you do as well. Yep. And that's why this space is so interesting too, as, as investment banking, in the investment banking space, is that you really, people trust you to kind of represent their business in an objective manner. But you and I both know how much blood and sweat and tears it takes to really build up that business. I think that's true of pretty much any business. You know, with the exception of being in the middle of something that's sort of a sea change, when there's a sea change occurring in a particular industry and you're on the ground floor of something that becomes explosive. I mean, those things happen, but they happen rarely and infrequently and to very few people. Most entrepreneurs spend 15, 20 years building up their businesses to turn them into sort of self-reliant entities that, that operate on their own, whether the entrepreneurs show up in the morning or not. And so that's really a yeoman's task. I teach a entrepreneurial class at my alma mater. And what I tell my students is that it's really 90% perseverance and 5% talent and 5% luck. Because I think in a way, you make your own opportunities by sticking it out, you know, going the distance. And if you stick to it long enough, then good things happen and you're able to capitalize on them. And most people who don't make it, they don't make it because they're not smart. They don't make it because they get turned off to the process and they get frustrated by the process and overwhelmed. And so I think the real talent lies in having some malleability and what I would call stick-to-itiveness. And I think those are the, the really differential points here that I've seen in entrepreneurs and in my partners. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. First of all, I love that phrase, stick-to-itiveness. I don't think I've quite heard that before, but I love it. And it's so true. It's just, you know, that day-to-day -day perseverance and, and focus. I think it's interesting, though, as I've learned, I think I shared this with a group of college graduates earlier this week, is there's no shortcut. At least I haven't found one. It really does require that grit day in and day out to kind of grow a business. Would you agree with 
that? Yeah, 100%. I, I don't think there's a shortcut to anything. I think that you have to put the time in. I think at the beginning, you don't know what you don't know. I, I know that's really an overused sentence or phrase, but it's really quite true. And what makes you ultimately a successful business person at the helm of a successful business is making those mistakes and not letting them be catastrophic and ultimately learning from them so you don't repeat them. And so that's what really builds sort of the arsenal of, it, of business acumen and intelligence in any business. And I think that's really a question of time and doing it and not being too risk adverse. I am on the continuum, not risk adverse at all, which is sort of interesting because my partners are a lot more risk adverse than I am. And I, so I, I really brought that to the table as a compliment to guys who were a little less rambunctious, willing to step out on a limb. And so it became a very complimentary partnership and relationship because where I was running full speed ahead, they were being a little more cautious and looking around the guardrails to make sure that we weren't making too many missteps. That's a nice compliment in terms of a partnership, balancing each other out and the whole risk profile. I think you need it. I think it's very helpful and it's proven to be a, a successful recipe for us. Well, it's always nice when not everybody's drinking the Kool-Aid. Yeah, <laughs> yes. no question. So Nicole, let's step back a little bit. Tell us how you have gotten to this place as a co-founder of Oberon Managing Partner. Give us a little bit of your story and, and journey as to how you got here. Sure. So I am sort of the accidental tourist in the investment and finance business. I went to law school after college thinking that I was going to not necessarily be a lawyer, but cap off with a really high-end education, get a advanced degree, which I thought at the time was still very important for women who wanted to compete in business because I felt you had to be better than the men to, to be competitive, particularly when I came into the marketplace. And my mother had gone to law school when I was a teenager, and I was so inspired by the case law discussion at the dinner table. And I was motivated by constitutional law because I believe in the U.S. Constitution and what it stands for. And so I went to law school, and I came out of law school and knew I wasn't going to practice because I'm not super detail-oriented and not super meticulous, which I think really good corporate lawyers should be. So I was thinking, my thought was I would go into the business end of the film industry because I'm very creative and just got a couple of job offers at CBS News for the graveyard shift and, and a few other things, which didn't really seem like I was, you know, it didn't seem like a good fit for me. And somebody gave me a job, offered me a job doing equity research. And I didn't know where really what equity research was, but I was very analytical and thought that it might be a good fit with my law background and jumped into it and then spent eight years developing my chops as a technology analyst and ended up pioneering the coverage of cybersecurity in the mid to late 90s at Oppenheimer. And what I got a taste of was a little bit of entrepreneurialism at Oppenheimer, because once you were a sell-side analyst with your own area of coverage, it was like you had your own mini business under the umbrella of this big investment bank. And so it was clear to me once I got a taste of running my own group that it was a natural fit. And I don't like big corporate environments. I'm not about politics. I'm about productivity. And so after about eight, nine years of being in research and then a little bit of a stint in venture capital where I was funding other people's businesses, I decided it was time to step off, put out a shingle 
and start Oberon. And that's really how I got here. If you asked me when I was a child or in secondary education or graduate school, if I ever thought I was going to have a career in finance, I would have looked at you sideways (laughs) and probably cross-eyed too. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) And how do you think finance has changed, that whole industry has changed over the years. You've been able to weave in and out in in terms of the different environments and now having your own business. How does it compare to those early years? I guess particularly for women, because we always hear about the financial sector is really not conducive, if you will, for a lot of women and, and careers. So let me start at the macro level and then take the question about women in finance. At a macro level, the finance business is very much boomer bust. And that's really driven off of greed. When there is a gravy train, all banks jump on that gravy train and they run it till through its conclusion and sometimes past its conclusion. You saw it in the mortgage business in the 2000s where they basically, the, the bulge bracket firms, meaning the largest firms on the street, knew that they were taking mortgage paper that wasn't worth a paper it was printed on and selling it into the public. But nobody wanted to be in the musical chair game without a chair and everybody was making money hand over fist. So if you go back and look for the last sort of close to 100 years, that the market has operated that way. It's a herd mentality. Everybody runs in the same direction when they find a moneymaker and they milk it until there's no milk left. And so that's what causes these sort of wild swings in market valuations and in the market productivity. And so the really the last great recession, this 2008 to 2013, was the byproduct, if you will, of this run in the, in the mortgage sector. So fast forward, right? It, that cleaned out a lot of banks that had been in the industry when I started. And so there's really been a fair amount of contraction. 2012-13. I mean, Lehman went out in 2008. Merrill disappeared into Bank of America. So all these big behemoths that were in the industry, when I got into the industry, and if you had told me when I got into the industry, they wouldn't exist, I would have fought you tooth and nail because they had been in business some 100 years, 150 years, and they were so substantial and they generated so much business. So the complexion of the industry has changed. And while New York still dominates the industry, you know, Asia has come up. Hong Kong has become a competitor. England for a while, I mean, not now that Brexit is happening, it's a lot less competitive. But for a while, a lot of companies were going public in, in the UK. Australia starting, I mean, it's not meaningful yet, but they have a market and companies are going there to go public rather than coming here. So, and also the regulatory environment has had an impact, both good and bad. So that's sort of the backdrop. It's very boom and bust in this industry. Now, people come to this industry because, you know, they have, they think they're going to make a lot of money. They think they're going to be able to capitalize on, on the opportunities. And some do and some don't. It depends where you are in the cycle and where you are within the industry. If you're in the money-making lines of business in the industry and you're able to capitalize well, then you can make a fortune. You also have to play the political game, particularly in the big organization. So that's a good segue into women in this industry. Women come into this industry in decent numbers, you know, attracted by the same thing that, that men come into this industry for, which is it's competitive. A lot of people on the banking side, the investment banking side are very bright. The business is normally very stimulating. But the things that the women don't compete as well in because of structural reasons are politics. Because in a lot of the big organizations, you have to be really good at the political game. And, you know, the the men still control the upper echelons of the business and control office politics. So you have to find a champion and you have to be able to mesh well with that. 
And sometimes that's challenging. You know, sometimes it's on the golf course, sometimes it's ball games, sometimes it's at a strip club. And so some of this is not so hospitable to women. And then the second part of it is FaceTime and the 2,000, 2,000 plus hour work week. And that's, it's easy to compete when you don't, you know, you don't necessarily have a child and you don't necessarily have a family. It becomes more challenging as you layer your time with other things which are equally as important and critical. And so that's what makes it more challenging for women to succeed in the upper ranks as compared to men. And that structural change has not, you know, that structural piece has not really changed. They pay lip service to changing it. They have programs which they are trying to mentor women, but they haven't changed the things that make it the most difficult for women to succeed over the long term in this business. So the women who stay, you know, some of them give up having children. Some of them find workarounds, but they don't make it easy. It's much easier on them. And in a way, it's deliberate because everybody, this is the dirty little secret that everybody knows, right? So I'm fortunate because I have my own business and I can control my schedule and I can control, you know, my situation. And so I've been fortunate enough to be able to do everything that I wanted to do without letting anything suffer. But if you're at the whim of a much bigger organization, you don't get to make those, you don't have that autonomy and you don't get to make those decisions like I do or you do. Yeah. Well, and I think in some, well, you know, it's great to have you being a leader of of this firm in the financial sector, because it does create change and it does indicate that there are more options for women. And and I agree with you. I think for most entrepreneurs, at least women, it's obviously you want to make a living and you want to make money, but it is really that control of time. So you can balance your priorities and not be worried about what other people might think or your boss might think. If you have somebody who's not accommodating, and now there are people that are accommodating, but there are a lot that aren't. You know, there are a lot that don't, you know, when you sit in the shoes, you know, in man's shoes, you know, you have a different perspective. They don't necessarily all relate to, you know, having the pressures of uh, childbearing and childcare and stuff like that. You know, they understand it intellectually, but not much more than that. And some don't even understand that. You know, they don't make accommodations and it shouldn't make it less competitive. I totally agree. Let's switch gears. Oberon's unique in this space. Tell us a little bit more about how Oberon kind of differentiates itself. So I think a couple of things. One is that first and foremost, we're entrepreneurs. So when we sit at a table with prospective clients and clients, we understand the challenges that they face. We understand the issues that they have to contend with. And we understand the, the what they had to do to get to the place they're at. And so there's like, there's a, a much deeper understanding than most bankers have when they're talking to clients. We really understand. We know it because we are entrepreneurs ourselves. So that's the first piece of it. The second piece is that we have been in the industry uh, individually and collectively a very long time. And so we're very experienced and we are good at knowing what we know and good at understanding that if we don't know something, we're not the right fit. And so I think because of that background and because of the, our, our history ex- and experience and expertise, we we give the client the right information as opposed to could be self-serving. And we also know what we're capable of getting done. And so because our business is structured in a way where, you know, our comp- most of our compensation comes from success, I mean, it's really a true meritocracy, you know, we have to, we and our people are uh, oriented towards doing the right thing at the right time. 
And I, I like that. I'm happy with that. Yeah, it's good outcomes for everybody involved. And then I think, I think the other thing is that, you know, we bring a level of service, really premium level of service to the middle market. And the middle market are sort of small and medium-sized companies, of which, which make up 60% of the companies in this country. And, you know, those companies may be 20 years old, 30 years old, 40 years old, 50 years old, 100 years old. But, you know, they're a $50 million business, a $100, $200 million business, and they uh, have the same needs as some of the multi-billion dollar conglomerates or the multi-billion dollar U.S.-based businesses. But Goldman Sachs is not going to take their business. Morgan Stanley is not going to take their business. And so we feel we're giving that level of support and advice because we came from those places and we've been doing this a long time. And so I think that's, you know, it's really like a, a blue chip offering for people who need it and really who aren't getting it at that level from those firms. And, and how do you define middle market just so so everybody understands? Sure. So a middle market, and really a middle market is really sub, I think in the marketplace, they would tell you sub 1 billion in, in revenues. But for us, what we consider the middle market, or maybe what you might call the lower middle market, are really companies who are generating anywhere from 20 million to about 250 million. That's really sort of lower middle market. And, uh, and so, you know, those are the companies that we service. Those are the companies that, you know, deserve to have the same level of, of expertise and capability, you know, as the companies that are generating multi, you know, billions of dollars. And so we, we're capable of giving it to them and we do on a daily basis. And we've, as you know, you know, closed north of 200 transactions in the last 10, 12 years. So we, we, and we enjoy working with entrepreneurs. You know, we, we have such respect for entrepreneurs because we know what it takes and we know what they've put into their business. And, and, and so it, you know, there's a, a brethren, a feeling of sisterhood, brotherhood. That, that yeah, exists. exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm excited. I mean, as, as most of our listeners know that I, you know, we've partnered, Kristen Luck and myself have partnered with Oberon to kind of play out in this vertical space. That's, pretty hot right now in terms of transformation. And it's exciting to learn about the investment banking business. It's not so exciting to take those tests um, and kind of marry that with the vertical, vertical specialization. So I'm curious, Nicole, from your perspective, you know, where have you seen that kind of marriage play out and proven effective? Marriage in terms of, give me a little more color. Sure, sure. In terms of a deep vertical uh, specialization, Got it. Got it. So we have, you know, we have people who have, like you, like yourselves, we have people who have deep expertise in particular market segments. So like you and Kristen and Corey have deep expertise in, in media and, and data related to media. We have people here who have spent 15, 20 years in servicing technology companies. And in fact, some of them have worked for technology companies before segueing into the banking business. So they understand software, they understand how it works, or they understand IT services and how that works. And so we have what I would call seven sectors that we focus on. So technology, media, and telecom, consumer retail, 
business services, industrials, real estate group. So, you know, to, to name a few. So why do that? The reason we do that is because when you're sitting across the table from this really successful entrepreneur who's built a business in software, you understand how the software business works, how challenging it is to take a product abroad and build direct sales force in foreign, in, in foreign countries, knowing just, for example, that you want a, a German representative in Germany and not a French representative representing your company in Germany because of the, the cultural issues. So having had experience with those in that industry, you know, somebody on our side of the table will be sensitive to those issues yeah. and will talk to the entrepreneur at a level that the entrepreneur really knows we understand their business, not just their, their banking needs, but their businesses. And that's another huge differentiator, I think, just so you understand the entrepreneurial just in general, but then also you have that vertical specialization. So it really makes that relationship so much more powerful in terms of being able to help clients. We think so. It's very important to us. I mean, we're, you know, we're obviously, you know, other firms do it, but they really don't do it at our level. And I think that's really, as you said, a significant differentiator, you know, that we've spent many, many years in these various sectors and, and developed a, a real knowledge base. So I'm going to switch complete gears because I know that you have specialty in kind of traditional media, experiential marketing and media. I'd love to get your take on kind of where do you think traditional media fits in this whole lens of digital media? It's a great question. Let's talk about what traditional media is. I don't know how, I'm sure your listeners are pretty uh, astute, but, you know, traditional media is really very simply television, radio, and print. And for decades, that was the conduit or the prism through which advertising reached the masses. And the, the benefit for the advertiser was that you know, you could buy a space in, you know, ad space on television and reach, you know, millions of people through millions of households. And so they used it very effectively. And with the advent of the internet and gaming and all of these other entertainment type technologies, if you will, or, or distribution of, of entertainment technologies, what you're finding is that everything is becoming increasingly fragmented. So that poses a threat and a challenge to traditional media, right? There used to be a few national newspapers. So if you put in an ad in, in, in a national, in a newspaper that reached across borders, state borders, you, you got a huge audience. And then same thing with television, the same thing with radio, right? So even if you had a local affiliate, you know, you could run, you know, CBS had a local, you know, local market, they would, they could run the advertising through all the local markets in the country on radio. So what's, what's happened is, now they're trying to figure out with their market having been either totally disenfranchised or disintermediated or certainly in worst case further diluted they're now faced with you know what do we want to be tomorrow and i think there are different answers for different forms of media i think from from my perspective television is just turning into set top box i i don't care whether you call it whether you're connected through cable or whether you're connected through Wi-Fi or whether you're, you know, you're seeing it on an, on a set-top box or, you know, it's still television. It's just television being delivered in a different form. And we went from the the networks programming it to, you know, everything on demand, right? The This Amazon solution, the Netflix solution, the Hulu, the streaming, streaming at will, if you will. 
And so now all the advertisers are saying, well, you know, if we're not going to catch them on traditional television only, we're going to start running, you know, running ads, buying space on Hulu, and you're going to see it on Netflix, and you're going to see it on Amazon, too. There's no question in my mind that they're all trying to figure out how to get into the advertising-supported business. And and so, you know, that's what's going to happen to television. Television, the, the delivery system is changing, and certainly the original players are being disintermediated unless they get into the streaming business. But it's clear that ju- that business is going to stay robust. It's just going to take on different people are going to control it and it's taking on a slightly different technology. I think, you know, the same probably goes for radio. I think that's sort of migrating to the online solutions, the online solutions providers, Spotify, those guys. And I think, you know, advertising supported models will just migrate and follow. I think that the most difficulty is really, you know, the, the print industry is facing the the greatest hurdles because people, A, don't read much. And if they do, they tend to read it online. And I think that the online or digital ads are not nearly as impactful as they used to be when they were in hard, when they were in traditional print. And and we can just dis- I, I sort of discussed a couple of those reasons. One is because if you had a magazine or a news a national magazine or a newspaper, and that was one of two major uh, periodicals in a particular region or locale, you know everybody read those because that's where they got their news from. And so you know you you got huge number of impressions when you ran an ad. Today, because there are so many websites and and information is you know is fragmented and and distributed in so many different places as our eyeballs it's sort of hard to to really get an audience in big numbers the way they used to when it was just a few periodicals and so and then on top of it people who are who look at the the website to look at the publication really ignore the stuff that's peripheral and so I think it's it's created a, a you know interesting challenge both for the digital media guys as well as as the traditional print guys and I don't think they have a solution. I don't think that this is working effectively and I think they still have to think through how they're going to make this work because I think you know people just ignore banner ads and they ignore pop-ups and they ignore ignore film rules on a website when they're looking for a piece of information and they can do it you know the way the the web is configured even on your mobile device or on your computer you can really ignore 99% of it and so the advertisers don't know if their message is being communicated effectively and so they're just you know the the pricing has come down and it's it's a it's a challenge where i think they're having their most success and you probably can attest to that is in social media right where there are people who are proselytizers on youtube on uh, instagram on who have who have developed followings for some reason which really blurs the line between news and user-generated content and kind of the whole journalism, you know, concept of what is perceived as news. Absolutely. Well, I think that the web has done a lot of damage there too, because the problem is that the advertising supported model is not working for them. 
And so they're cutting, talk about cutting corners as we started in the beginning, they're cutting corners. They're sharing news stories amongst themselves. They're not doing, as you say, proper journalism. Mm -hmm. They're not checking their sources. They're publishing stuff which is untrue. And then that sort of uh, further, it's more problematic because then you have politicians saying, you know, you can't trust any of these outlets. Right. I mean, I think, you know, the only decent news sources today are public television. You know, that's where you're getting, you know, that's really where you're getting mostly unvarnished news and, yes. and well-researched news because they were never advertising. They were, they were, they're sponsored, but they were never aver- advertising supported. So they don't have, they don't have that. So true. Nicole, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure and thanks for just taking the time. Thank you. Happy to have done it. And thank you for having me on. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to Data Gurus Podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.datagurusepodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.datagurusepodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.